Hi, this is Stephanie Fay, and this is season two. Thanks for joining. Hello, and welcome to season two, episode 11. In this episode, we're going to cover the concept of attachment, and we're going to look at it as a biobehavioral adaptation for emotion regulation and exploration. And we're going to look at attunement and resonance, what creates insecure attachment patterns and mechanisms, as well as asymmetrical brain activity and the difference between subsymbolic and symbolic processes in the brain and the importance of creating links between these. So to start this episode, imagine that you are on a planet that is completely foreign to you and you have no idea how to move around on this planet yet. It has different gravitational fields and terrains that are completely unfamiliar to you. And in order to survive, you need to have a certain amount of oxygen and nutrients. And imagine that there is a fueling station that provides you with just the right amount of oxygen and nutrients to allow you to move away from the fueling station for a certain amount of time so that you can explore and figure things out on this planet. And because you're a complex adaptive system and part of your nature is to complexify, you will generally have a mechanism within you that seeks to adapt and explore new terrains and master the movements of your body and the different systems that you have while you're on this planet. Imagine also that there are other fueling stations in other corners of this planet, but you need to get to them first. And so you have to figure out how to do that. And the only way to do that is to explore these new terrains and figure out how to get there. Now imagine that the fueling station that you first get to the planet with and that you're aware of is always there with just the right amount of nutrients and oxygen. And you know exactly, in a sense, how long you have until you run out and you need to get more of these nutrients and oxygen. And that you always know more or less where it is. You always know that you can return to it and it will be there. So imagine with that, with that knowledge, what it might be like to experience that planet. That you might have a little more ability to go and explore these other terrains, which then can lead you to find new fueling stations. And from those new fueling stations, you get to explore more and more. And you really begin to master the navigation of this planet and how to get your needs met, as well as how to complexify and become more adaptive and flexible because you're able to withstand a lot of different types of storms and conditions and frontiers and landscapes and all that kind of stuff because you are learning how to master yourself on a wide array of terrains, not just in one tiny little area if you were connected only to that original fueling station. Now imagine if that original fueling station that you landed on the planet with wasn't always there or didn't always turn on. You weren't always able to access the oxygen and the nutrients. Imagine what that experience could be like for you on this new planet. There's a possibility you would never want to leave that fueling station because at the very moment that it might possibly offer you the nutrients and oxygen that you need, you want to be there for that. You might also have some shutting down mechanisms because it gets really exhausting to try and turn to this fueling station then it's not providing you with what you need. So you don't bother using any kind of energy or resources to move towards it because that wastes your energy. And you may not get what you need in the end anyway. So that's an analogy of what attachment is for us. Mary Ainsworth came up with the idea of secure base. John Bowlby was the person to first coin the word attachment, in a sense, as a paradigm for understanding human development. 
And he talked about it as a seeking of proximity to an attachment figure, especially during times of stress. So that's really what attachment is. It's seeking proximity to a caregiver. And our very first experiences with that and with the availability and attunement of that caregiver have profound effects on our behaviors and how we seek proximity or avoid proximity later in life with other people. And just like in the analogy of the fueling station, the fueling station can't be something that only turns on when we are in a good state. In fact, the status of that fueling station is almost most important when we're in a state of distress and even panic or anxiety, because that is when we are not able to regulate ourselves in ways that are the most helpful for our nervous system. And so that's the other component of the attachment system and the attachment figure that I'll go into in a later section is the idea of resonance, that our relationships cannot only be about bonding and safety when conditions are good and behavior is ideal, but also for us to explore a wide array of rupture and repair and distress and to know that we have a secure base to return to that allows us to regulate ourselves. And so building off of Bowlby and Ainsworth attachment theory, Alan Shore, who's someone I quote from a lot, also talks about it moving away from attachment theory to really just regulation theory. That attachment is a biobehavioral adaptation or mechanism that uses signals, signal seeking and signal transmission of the body, the voice, gesture, touch, as well as smell, all the different senses, and that we use these for emotion regulation and exploration. And so there are different types of attachment that get created early in childhood. And there can be a lot of overlap and variety to all of this. And in the next section, I'm going to talk about secure attachment and resonance and synchrony. So Ruth Feldman from Yale University talks about the concept of resonance synchrony and attunement in terms of attachment and the different mechanisms we have. So when we're talking about resonance and synchrony and attunement, what we're saying is that as the child goes through different internal states, it signals these out through various mechanisms, such as movement of the body, facial gesture, vocalization, smell also, many different non-conscious types of signals that are being transmitted out and then perceived by the caregiver. The resonance and synchrony have to do with the availability of the caregiver in that moment to recognize, in a sense, and feedback signals that can make the child aware of the caregiver's proximity and availability. So let's just backtrack a little bit to when you were in the womb, there is no need, in a sense, for any of these mechanisms yet. You are enveloped. There is no separation. There is no need for the baby yet to do any particular extra things to survive. All of it's kind of being taken care of, in a sense, in the womb. But as you are born, there is the initial separation. So the very initial experience of being alone on a new planet, and not being able to get all your needs met in this new environment. And so we have a mechanism for making sure that as the immature physiological nervous system of a baby leaves the womb, that it finds ways to, in a sense, offload or outsource what it needs to do to survive to the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and to complexify. And so in many species, and particularly mammals and primates and humans, there is a decent amount of this outsourcing to the caregiver from the child. In order to get needs met, there needs to be some type of signaling mechanism, 
so that the caregiver can know where the child is, as well as what state it's in, so that its needs can be met. And so the main mechanisms we have early in life for this are touch in terms of the body and the body's actual proximity to another. So before the child even opens its eyes, if it feels the pressure and temperature of another living organism next to it, it knows it's not alone. And that's in many ways the only way it knows that. The other mechanism that comes into play is vocalization. And so even when there is no pressure or temperature from another body touching the baby, it can also know that there is safety nearby through a sense of pinging, a call out and then a call back. So a vocalization of some sort and then a sound, a vocalization or a gesture back. We also have our additional senses that contribute to this whole system. So our visual system and our sense of smell. So that's just the first kind of layer of this mechanism of attachment is that it is a proximity-seeking mechanism and the proximity is what's needed for us to regulate ourselves. And so it is the, in a sense, the foundation of our first experiences of serving something out and seeing what gets returned. And our first experiences in doing this then later set the tone or can create patterns for how we do this later in life with slightly more sophisticated mechanisms that may not involve just physical proximity, but it can also involve vocalization, as well as the other thing that comes into play later in life for us, which are other ways that we use to communicate. So that then can become about our hands using the phone to type words and pinging something out to see what gets pinged back to us. So these are ways that we seek proximity to another person. It's a signal transmission and reception system. What's really important about this entire system, and this comes back to the concept of resonance and attunement, is that it cannot only be during times of calm that the caregiver attunes and and matches the child's state and their signals. There also needs to be a capacity and a range of the caregiver to be able to tolerate signals of distress from the child. And in fact, this is when it is the most important for this to happen. When a child is in distress or dysregulated and there's a certain level of arousal that's uncomfortable, those signals get transmitted out and the ability and capacity of the caregiver to maintain an attunement and availability and then an attempt to respond to whatever those distress signals are help the child get back to, in a sense, an equilibrium of some sort so that it can restore its system And this is what allows the child then to access its neural and behavioral resources for continued adaptability and flexibility and mastery of of the environment and exploration as well. So the availability of the caregiver in those moments, particularly of distress, is what allows the child to actually become more independent. So that sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like the more available a caregiver is in the earliest moments of our life, the more dependent a child will get, but it's actually the opposite. The more available and attuned, which doesn't mean intrusive, so we're going to get into that as well. There can be a preoccupied and intrusive style of the parent that doesn't allow enough space for the child to explore. But in terms of, for example, when there's the moment of distress or dysregulation, the availability of the caregiver in that moment to just be present and then respond to whatever that distress is and use some attempt to restore a regulated state to the child. That availability actually helps the child then know that there is that fueling station in a sense there, that secure base, which then allows the child to then go explore and know that it can return back when it becomes dysregulated again. And that ability to leave almost makes the tether the cord longer and longer so the child can go out and explore longer and come back. And the more dependable that secure base is, the more the child can explore. The less dependable it is, the less reliant it is, the more the child will have 
what they call an insecure attachment. And insecure, not meaning in a sense your self-esteem level, insecure meaning not reliable, not dependable, very fragile sense of attachment. So I just want to highlight that as it's very important for us to understand in relationships, and we'll get into adult stuff in, in a later section, that it's very much about experiencing a wide array of emotional experiences within our attachment and bonding relationships. It's not about keeping things in a narrow range. The ability of an important person of our li- in our life to tolerate our ups and downs and our levels of distress, our highs and our lows, and to be able to stay reliable in a sense for us to return to as a base, that is what creates the bonding and the secure attachment. So there are a lot of relationships we can experience that only tolerate a very, very narrow range of emotional experiences. They call that the the fair weather friends. The friends that can be with you when you're positive and happy, but that are not able to tolerate a wider range of that. So what we want to look for in our relationships and also be for other people is to allow them and for them to allow us to experience a wide affective array to expand that. And so that's just something to think about that we may not have had as much in our earliest experiences. And so it might be something that we need to work on now. And not only in our relationships with others, but our relationship with ourselves. How much we allow ourselves to express and experience a wide array and then know how to return to some feeling of centeredness or groundedness or whatever that desired internal state is. And in the next section, I'll go through a few different theories of these kind of attachment styles and attachment patterns. So there are a lot of different conditions that can create insecure types of attachment. Some of these can be when a caregiver is ill or depressed, addicted, preoccupied, intrusive, volatile, abusive, dysregulated. So according to Ruth Feldman's research, these are all conditions that create a lack of resonance and synchronous signaling, meaning that when the child is in need of some feedback and that reliable, secure base, that base is not there, or it's too intrusive and too controlling, not allowing the child to explore, not allowing the child to have independent time. So there's a wide range of that. But what's important about this is that it disrupts the oxytocin system. So oxytocin being that hormone that really allows us to feel, experience a bond, to experience what connection and bonding and secure attachment are. When there are these conditions from the caregiver that disrupt that oxytocin system, what then happens is there are fewer bonding behaviors displayed by the child. And then that, in turn, disrupts the oxytocin system of the caregiver. And so it's this vicious cycle. So when the caregiver is not available, because there is not this flowing of oxytocin in those moments, the child is not in that regulated, connected state with the caregiver. And the signal transmission that happens then disrupts the cycle of bonding. So there are a few different frameworks for talking about attachment that I'll just review very quickly here. And then we're going to go into some of the nervous system stuff in another section. But from Bowlby and Ainsworth, the framework of secure versus insecure attachment is something that they worked on. So there's the secure attachment, which has to do with being able to tolerate separation and then reunification coming back. So there's an independence, but there is a connection and a bonding that occur. In terms of the insecure attachment, there are kind of three subtypes within their framework, avoidant, anxious, and disorganized. Later research from Philip Shaver and Cindy Hazen went into how these attachment patterns can actually be displayed or manifested within adult relationships. And so within theirs, there is the secure subtype. And then within the insecure subtypes, there is anxious, preoccupied, dismissive, avoidant, 
and fearful avoidant. And so one thing just to think about in terms of these frameworks is that a common theme of the secure versus insecure attachment mechanisms or patterns is that within a secure attachment pattern, there is an ability to hold one's own perspective and the partner or the other person's perspective at the same time. Whereas the insecure pattern has a challenge in that, has a challenge of holding their own perspective and the other person's at the same time. It generally, the insecure style, insecure patterns tend to manifest as a preoccupation of one's own state without holding the other's perspective or the other, the concept of another person's state at the same time. So the behaviors that manifest have everything to do with only that person's internal distress when it comes to attachment and connection. That's the difference in a sense between the secure and insecure. So within insecure, there is a unifying theme which is that inability or challenge to hold one's own perspective and another's. The other underlying theme within the insecure style has to do with fear and the fear being something related to attachment. And this is where now they diverge. So this is where the various subtypes of insecure become different. So the anxious preoccupied has a fear that is dominated more in the realm of being alone and feeling abandoned or unsupported. Whereas the two different subtypes of avoidant attachment styles or attachment patterns are related to a fear of being consumed or intruded upon. So within the anxious preoccupied attachment pattern, when there is a gap in communication, when the person is seeking proximity through these, their voice, through texting, through whatever they're doing, whatever these behaviors, these movements are to try and create a ping so that they can get a ping back, right? A call and then a call back. That's that proximity seeking using signals. When there are gaps in that for an anxious preoccupied person, those gaps are very, very scary and can lead to often more preoccupied behavior. So more preoccupation with the relationship, with, with, with what they did, what the behaviors of the other person are, and then internalizing things too of what they did, etc. With the avoidant subtypes, there is more fear that tends to come up when closeness starts to increase. So the more, so the, the smaller the gaps, the more an avoidant, a person with more of the avoidant tendencies will start to feel overwhelmed. The difference between the dismissive and the fearful is that the often with fearful avoidant, a person may have had very scary experiences with an attachment figure, with violence or aggressiveness or abusiveness. Whereas the dismissive avoidant, the experiences may have been more related to neglect or unavailability. And again, there's many different mixtures and combinations of all of this because our parents often weren't the same style. So there can also be schemas related to if one parent that was one gender is a certain way, you may have an experience with people who have similarities to either the gender or other types of just associations. There could be a tone of voice or a mannerism or something that triggers a schema in a sense, an attachment schema for one type of person versus another. So we often don't have the same attachment mechanisms for every person and every type of relationship. There's often a, in a sense, a category of relationship that can trigger one type of attachment schema versus another. And then just lastly, in this little overview of the different theories that have to do with attachment is from John Gottman and the Gottman Institute. So this is more about adult relationships. And he became known for his work on marriages and what he called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) So different behaviors that can actually be fairly good predictors of whether marriages succeed or don't. And he also has linked a lot of this with physiological markers as well. So arousal levels. So he's noticed that in partners where there is high stress levels during interactions, those are the ones that tend to not fare well later in the longevity or happiness, in a sense, the satisfaction of the marriage. So there is definitely a pattern of partners that are able to be regulated within their own interactions and for their stress levels to go down, that those tend to 
do better. And the four mechanisms that he sees that can really be harmful to relationships are criticism. So constantly noticing what's wrong, defensiveness, which is like a feeling attacked and having a counterattack, stonewalling, which is like a shutting down, and then contempt. So a level of almost disgust towards the partner. So those are some of the frameworks that have emerged over the years through the studies on attachment and bonding. And in the next section, I'm going to go over how some of these can be overlaid with the social engagement system that I've talked about in previous episodes and the different movements and mechanisms we have with those. In previous episodes, I've talked about the social engagement system. So very quick review. It's something proposed by Stephen Porges. And it is, in a sense, one of the levels of our nervous system mechanisms. So we have, in a sense, a tier, a higher tier of sophistication and communication that involves vocalization, facial gestures, listening to another person's voice, like tuning into their voice, and eye gaze. So how, how we use our eyes to tune into another person. Those are part of the higher level or the more sophisticated level of how we co-regulate. So create a sense of regulation and restoration, as well as play and exploration and psychological safety with others. That is, you know, in a sense, the, the level that we want to be in most often because it allows us to use our higher order types of thinking and those areas of the brain that are involved in long-term projection and problem solving, flexibility, ideational fluency, things like that. When that system is rendered functionless, so not useful to us in a certain moment, so we, we are trying to use our voice or these other communication features and they're not working to create psychological safety within an interaction, the next system then rises in activity and that system is a sympathetic nervous system which has to do with our fight or flight behaviors. So there is blood flow to the skeletal muscles, which allows for limb movement and mobilization. Whether we attack somebody using our limbs to mobilize or we run away, we flee from them. If that system is rendered functionless and does not create safety within that interaction, another system may rise in activity, and that is another level of the parasympathetic nervous system which tends to be correlated only with positive things such as restoration and rest and digestion. But in this level, how it gets activated is the body is going into a shutdown. And so it's becoming very, very conservative and there's less blood flow to a lot of different areas of the brain. It's becoming much more conservative in terms of what is being used. So this is where we can see a collapse um, and dissociation as well. And where the vagus nerve really has a strong effect on the heart, making it beat very, very slowly. And this is where we can actually see extreme levels of heart rate variability, but to a point where it's not in a restorative sense. So we can have heart rate variability, and the higher it is, the more variable it is. That tends to be a marker of good health and good access to different mechanisms we have for regulating our nervous system. But if it goes into an extremely high level, that can also indicate that the parasympathetic nervous system is being hyperactivated in stressful situations, for example. So I just have a little framework. There, there are different theories that talk about, so we have our social engagement system, we have our fight-flight system, a free system, and then also something called the fawning response, which has to do with, in a sense, pleasing, seeing someone as superior to oneself and doing things to appease them. I have a framework that uh, I'm just going to introduce here very briefly. I'll go into it more in depth in later content, but it just, I think it's helpful because I found something that starts with C's. Um, so we can use that to just take a look at the different movements we have within our system that allow us to understand what mechanisms might be at play 
And so we may have a big mix of all these, or we may have a very dominant mechanism. And all of these are things that come up when we are feeling like that social engagement system is not allowing us to create a sense of psychological safety with someone and is, and in a sense that secure attachment. So if we have different patterns from our earliest experiences that come up, we may resort to some of these particular mechanisms. And what I want to bring to our attention with all of this is how these manifest as bodily postures, how our voice changes within all of them, how our hand gestures might change, how our eye gaze, our facial gestures, all of those things might change. And I always like to do that because that helps us bring awareness into a moment of how it's actually manifesting. And sometimes I think that's more helpful than only these conceptual frameworks or even talking about neuroscience research like brain imaging, because we can't really know what's actually happening in those moments. Because that brings us, in a sense, out of the visceral sensory experience of what might be happening within our interactions with others. So on the top level, using that social engagement system is when we can achieve our desired state and what can be a platform for secure attachment, which is a sense of coherence and connection and co-regulation. So we are using our voice, our hands, our body, our breath, our movements in ways that attune to and are available for the other person, and they are doing that for us. And so remember, again, this doesn't mean only happiness and positivity, but we are able to do these things, whether if we're feeling distressed or frustrated, anxious, angry, we are still using that system to convey those signals to another And they are available to accept, in a sense, and integrate those signals for themselves and then relay something back to us. So they are not leaving the scene. They are not completely misattuning by meeting our signal for communication with an attack. They are able to stay present and convey signals back. So that's the the top level that we are looking for. So from, from this point on, the other levels that I'm going to talk about are when we are not feeling that sense of coherence and connection and co-regulation. So one of those levels is what I call coercion, emotional coercion. It's using still our voice and our facial gestures, our body, our movement, our posture, all of those things, but in order to manipulate or control the emotional reaction of another. So it could be displaying a certain amount of distress or trying to have the other person feel guilt or shame in a sense for what they are doing to us. And so that is not necessarily a bad thing. That's something that we actually do as children. And it is a way to, we are coercing in a sense. We want to get a reaction. We are testing out how our caregiver, how an attachment figure is going to respond to our needs. So these are are not maladaptive mechanisms, especially when we are little. The problem is that we bring a lot of what happened to us when we're little and our expectations of not having our needs met into our adult relationships. And so now this level of emotional coercion where we are using all these signals to try and get a reaction from someone is disproportionate to what's actually happening because it's carrying a lot of our expectations from our past. So that's why this would be called coercion. And that's different than the higher level that I was just talking about, where you can use your voice and your words and your facial gestures, all of those things to convey your very authentic sense of what you're feeling in that moment. But you're doing it in a way to simply express how you're feeling, not to actually really control the reaction of the other. And the layer that's missing in that higher level of what I'm talking about in terms of emotional communication is You're not bringing as many of your expectations from the past in that moment. You are giving the other person, in a sense, the benefit of the doubt that they will receive what you were saying instead of assuming that they're not going to be there for you, assuming that they're going to be angry or whatever those things are. So that first level, the coherence and communication I'm talking about has to do with us letting go a bit of our expectations from our past and our assumptions about the other person. And we're trying to give the benefit of the doubt and have the highest level of communication in those moments. These lower levels, so this emotional coercion has a lot more assumption and our past 
unconscious baggage. So I will get into the, in the last section, we're going to talk a lot more about how to help break some of that and bring more awareness to ourselves so that we're not bringing all those assumptions into each moment. So that's emotional coercion. The next level that correlates a little bit more with the fight response is what I call claw. And so that is where we will use words to really attack. And we may even, there, there are people that will also use physical gestures to attack. So this is an attack response. And this is, you know, and there are, if you, you can probably tell, there are overlaps with what animals do, right? So even if you see um, a dog, it will initially use sound, a bark to keep someone away. But if they get closer, it will need to use some type of physical mechanism. So that would be the claw response. And so that can happen with us as well. As our boundaries feel intruded upon, whether these are it's realistically happening or we just believe it's happening because of our past experiences and all the filters we have, we may go into the claw, which is kind of an attack attack mode of some sort. So that can be saying very hurtful things to another person, insulting them and using threats of physical violence or actual violence and aggressiveness. The next level is climb, climb and crawl I have, which is a movement. This is a mobilization response. And this is in a sense correlated with the avoidant type of style and the flight response. So this is where we are doing whatever. So I have climb as like the analogy of getting away from the person. So we don't want to be pinned down. We don't want to have proximity with them. So we do what we can. And so an animal might try and climb or crawl away or run away. If we are within this relationship, but we don't want, we're afraid of something, we're feeling intruded upon, we don't want to have proximity because we may have avoidant tendencies, then we may constantly keep ourselves busy, move from location to location, not be able to be pinned down, like not have a, be able to pin down a calendar date. Like we will constantly miss things, be late for them, uh, double book and not be available So that's like an avoidant response. And that can also look like the climb as an analogy for keeping ourselves very, very busy with our career. So constantly trying to climb to the next peak, the next level. And in doing this, we avoid some of the intimacy or connection that might be there for us in a relationship that we have with an attachment figure. Another level that is less about mobilization and now somewhat about immobilization is the camouflage response. And this is in a sense, really trying to blend in. So becoming very much like the person adopting what they like, not really having your own preferences or your own style, just trying to match them and trying to do it in the most agreeable way possible. So just blending in as much as possible. And there are adaptiveness to all of these things, right? But there, if this is coming from a place of, in a sense, fear of standing out, fear of having one's own preferences, then it may be more related to things we witnessed as a child or things we experienced as a child in terms of the responses we were getting from our attachment figures. So the camouflage is, in a sense, a bit of that fawning response I'm talking about. But it's this agreeable passiveness, no preferences, just blending in, kind of being amorphous in a sense, having no real personality of your own. A level that's in a sense scarier to be in is the cower response. And so this is more of a, in a sense, a active submission. So really trying to actively please the other person or obey them, or if there are demands being made, even boundaries being intruded upon, a cowering and a submission to that. That's a very scary place to be as a animal, as an organism, because it means that in a sense, there is an experience of the other mechanisms not being available or being functionless, meaning that our voice to try and stand out, to say no, to claw or to keep ourselves busy or whatever, those mechanisms may in our past experiences may not have worked. And so this could be a pattern that we have where we cower, we submit ourselves, or it could be just from within the current interaction that that's that's where we feel the other mechanisms are not available to us in that moment. And then lastly, there is the collapse response where there's a real nothingness to it. It's apathy, it's a shutdown. 
the person might be there, but they're completely zoned out, numbed out. So that's reflective of a, a nervous system that has been very exhausted over time in many ways and doesn't have the, the neural and behavioral resources to bring themselves into a sense of movement and mobilization to try something new, to communicate in a new way. So that's a shutdown. So there's coherence at the top, coherence, co-regulation at the top, coercion, claw, climb, camouflage, cower, and collapse. So those are just some words I use to create a framework to just help us understand that there are a lot of different mechanisms we use in our relationships, and we may have one that dominates over the other. And the problem is, it's not that these are all problems. It's just that many of us are seeking a sense of secure attachment and closeness. And those mechanisms that I was talking about can prevent us from having that closeness. Because if we are attacking, if we are constantly staying busy and preoccupied, if we are not showing our preferences, if we are zoned out, those are all things that are not really creating a secure attachment. They're creating a superficial type of relationship that is not based on us truly expressing ourselves and feeling safe. But we do need to remember that it may be the person in our relationship that is triggering a lot of this, but a lot of it may also have to do with our earliest attachment experiences. And that's the big awareness that we need to start bringing into our lives. And I want to go a little more into that in, in the last section. In the next section, I'm going to talk about earned secure attachment and brain activity that's involved in all of this. So there's different resilience type of research out there that shows that we can move from very insecure attachment patterns and dysfunctional environments from our childhood and move into earned secure. So that's different than continuous secure. Continuous secure is we had a very functional and healthy and adaptive caregiver and attachment system growing up, and we've continued to do that. So there are people that have that, and they often display the secure kind of attachment styles. An earned secure is someone who moved from insecure, whether it's avoidant, the fearful avoidant, dismissive avoidant, or anxious preoccupied, into secure attachment behaviors and patterns. Often people with an earned secure pattern um, later in life have a cohesive narrative about their childhood. So they're less dysregulated as they talk about it. There's some, I did, I was involved in some research at NYU where we looked at these kinds of narratives and how people talked about their childhood was an indication of what kind of attachment style they had. So I want to go into, in a sense, the brain circuitry that can reflect some of what's happening in terms of how we move from these unconscious patterns of dysregulation within our relationships into a more aware sense of our emotions and our ability to communicate them. So just to start with that, I'm just going to pull from Graham Taylor from University of Toronto, and he does work with alexithymia and attachment. So alexithymia is an inability to identify and report or express feelings so there's a lot more to that whole concept, but just the main piece of it that I'm just bringing up here is just having a challenge with our own attunement and awareness of feelings and having a disconnect between what's happening in our body and how we're able to, in a sense, consciously become aware of our experience. With that framework, with that concept of alexithymia, Taylor talks about Emotional responsiveness was emotional responses and regulation consisting of three interrelated systems. So the first system is neurophysiological, which is mainly our autonomic and endocrine system. The second is motor expressive systems. And the third is cognitive experiential. So that's an awareness and reporting of our feeling states. The cognitive experiential is a really big component of what I'm going to get to here with the brain circuitry stuff. So you may have heard me talk about in my videos and I think another episode, 
that a lot of what I have seen in doing quantitative EEGs is asymmetry in brain maps, specifically in the frontal areas of the brain. And specifically, for example, with depression, uh, asymmetrical dominance of slower wave activity, the theta and the lower bands of alpha uh, brain waves in the left prefrontal cortex. And what some of the research has shown that when there is a dominance of these, the lower band of alpha in the frontal, the left frontal area, that can reflect challenges in cognitive processing and verbalizing of emotional experiences. And so how I also see that manifested in behavior as well is when the people who have those kinds of brain maps, they tend to also be reporting symptoms of depression. And what you also, I have also observed in many of those people is an ability to talk about their experiences and express it facially and vocally. There's often a lack of that emotional expressiveness. And asking them how they feel often is, it's difficult for them to answer that. They're not very in touch with that. And so all of the brain is connected in many ways, but there is some lateralization. I think I've talked about that in another episode, which just means if, you know, a, a bit of a specialty of function on one side versus the other. And so what we see with the left, there is a bit more dominance of symbolic types of processes that have to do with words and verbal schemas. Whereas on the right, we see more dominance of global, nonverbal representations of emotions. So these can be analogies and they are sub-symbolic. So sub-symbolic is visceral, sensory, and kinesthetic. Whereas the left has a bit more, so it has the symbolic and it has a bit more of the discrete and the nameable types of things, the categorical and the nameable. So when we're seeing this asymmetry, we're seeing a, a disconnect, a lack of flow between the, the left and the right, and a lack of these links between the sub-symbolic and experiential, so the the feelings, the kinesthetic, the visceral sensory feelings and experiences with the more cognitive and the verbal symbolic left. In order to get better at regulating our emotions, we need to allow it to be a cognitive experiential process. And so we do need to have this link between the sub-symbolic and the symbolic. One reason is this helps us understand ourselves, understand our own experiences, Otherwise, our, the feelings that come up just become this undifferentiated arousal. We can't figure out where it is. We don't know why. We don't know what it is. We can't nuance it in any way. It's just undifferentiated arousal. If that is the experience and we can't have a, a naming of it in some sense, it becomes very hard to understand. It becomes hard to report to others. And then when that happens, it makes it hard for them to respond to us because we can't really name and nuance what our experience is. Bringing more awareness and trying to fine-tune our ability to have the emotional experiences and the feelings and then figure out how to name them and talk and report about them helps us also engage those frontal areas, which are helpful for us to stop ruminating. So there is some experience, research also with alexithymia, that because there's just these undifferentiated experiences of arousal that are happening, they tend to, people tend to either ruminate and it just kind of recycles within them because they can't make sense of it. They can't bring cognitive reasoning, in a sense, to what's happening. And then that also can lead to maladaptive behaviors because there is no ability to report it and then bring it in a sense to a more tangible, concrete awareness. So that's when substance abuse and, and different substances can get used or even aggressive behaviors. So there's research in prisons on that as well, that the higher the levels of alexithymia, the more resorting there is to aggressive behaviors and substance abuse as some examples. So what we want to do is we want to create links between the sub-symbolic right-brained experiences that are visceral and sensory and kinesthetic and integrate them and create flow, a communication flow with the left that is more symbolic. 
The very important part of this is this also helps us get better at pattern seeking and pattern awareness. So the more we are aware of our patterns, and we can do this by reporting and naming what's happening to us more often, the better we get at recognizing that, wow, this is not the first time this has happened. Oh, this might come from somewhere else. Maybe this has less to do with this person right now and actually comes from way earlier experiences I have. The only way we're really going to get to those patterns is if we get to the experience we're actually having in the moment, the feeling we're having in the moment. So one thing that I have seen over and over again in many different platforms of therapy and psychology is that people can get very stuck on the story and the plot points. They use a lot of words to talk about the content. So they're talking about the characters, they're talking about other people's behaviors, they're talking about the all the plot, the, the storyline. What happened, where, who did what. What I often don't see in those situations is any kind of awareness of the emotions and awareness of patterns. Because when you get fixated on the content and the storyline, those are often changing. It's a different person this time, a different name, a different scene, a different situation. They texted you different words or they didn't. It w- there's a lot of different observable, tangible content that is different. And because of that, it might be harder to connect that there is actually something that has been going on for a while with you in terms of your experiences because you keep talking about the content and the content is changing. But what might not be changing as much is your experience and the feelings that are coming up from these attachment experiences that you had a long, a long time ago and the sense of aloneness or intrusiveness or abandonment or volatility. All of those feelings and experiences you had, those were pre-verbal and non-verbal, visceral, sensory, kinesthetic experiences, and they often were before you had words. So those already existed, and there is generally a theme and a pattern to how those how you are experiencing that now. So if you can let go of the content so much and the plot points and the characters and all of that observing of other people's behavior, and you go back into yourself and the actual visceral sensory kinesthetic feelings that you feel, the physiological sensations you feel within your body, you will start to notice patterns. That's where the patterns are. The patterns are not going to come from the content because that's always changing. The patterns are coming from your visceral sensory kinesthetic sensory experiences. So the more you tune into that, the more you go into that and you feel them and you experience them before you talk about them, before you try to name them, you're actually going to seek the nameless, seek the feeling, actually feel the feeling, allow your all of that labeling and categorizing and verbalizing and all of that stuff to drop so that you can go into the sub-symbolic realm of your experience. If you can do that, first of all, you are just creating a link now between your conscious awareness and those sub-symbolic processes. And what that will allow you to do is if you continue to do that, your brain, our mind-brain-body system is a pattern-recognizing system, it will start to, you will start to become aware of patterns. And what's very helpful about recognizing patterns is that once we start to see them, we can start to backtrack as to what is triggering those patterns. And when we're able to do that, we are bringing more awareness and complexity into each situation. And we are also giving ourselves the chance to prevent those patterns from happening in the first place. When we don't have that pattern recognition, it's very unconscious. And we think all of a sudden this thing happened and there is no connection to how that has happened before and it happened before and it happened before that. So a very big part of becoming more aware of the physiological and sub-symbolic processes for us, the visceral sensory kinesthetic processes, the better we get it recognizing our patterns. And another very big component of that is as we get better at feeling our actual feelings, the physiological sensations, and then figuring out how to report them and express them. First of all, we create a wider vocabulary, a more expansive array 
of nuance that we then can report to another. And that allows them into our experience in more sophisticated ways. Instead of just hating what's happening, disliking what's happening, the person may not be able to respond to that. But if we can nuance whether this is overwhelm because of closeness or, or fear because we are alone, those kinds of connections can be made. And then the person has a better chance of being able to respond. And we have a better chance of actually asking for what we need. That also gives us a chance of picking partners and picking friends that we know can attune to our needs. Because if we are getting more aware of what our sensations are, what our feelings are, which can then help us connect with what our needs are in the moment, what our fears are in the moment, and we're able to report that to another, if they can't respond to that with our higher level of emotional awareness and more mature wave and nuanced way of communicating our needs, we then know they may not be a good partner or friend for us. But if we are able to express that and they are able to respond back, we now know we've met our match. We've met someone who has that sophisticated, more mature level of attuning and being coherent and resonant and attuned to what we are trying to report and express. So a higher level of that emotional communication. So finally, to wrap all this up, I want to talk about three ways that we can create a higher level of this emotional awareness and awareness of our patterns. The first is, I always use this as one of my first points of what we can do to change, but it always starts with awareness. So it's awareness of our sensations and awareness that we have attachment patterns from our past. So we may have a dominant style. We might be more avoidant, more, be more dismissive avoidant, fearful avoidant, anxious preoccupied. We may have one of those other mechanisms that we use more often that I talked about. We're coercing, we're trying to attack or claw, we're keeping ourselves busy and avoiding interactions. We might be camouflaging ourselves and having no preferences and just trying to please others. We might be submitting, we might be collapsing and zoning out as some examples. Just have awareness that we might have some of those mechanisms and that often those mechanisms are ways we are using to deal with a distress response we're having that has to do with attachment. And that the best way for us to really explore the realm of attachment and trying to get closer to secure attachment is to get better at communicating in those mature ways. So just have the awareness that we have attachment patterns Try to be more aware of the sensations in your body. And also be aware that we have attachment needs and there is nothing wrong with that. That we are co-regulating creatures. That's a biological imperative. And that we need to have some form of a secure attachment type of relationship in our lives in order for us to become more independent and explore. So we can't necessarily rely on only one person to orbit around and to help us get to our regulated state. We need to come up with our own ways of self-regulating and diversifying how we do that with other people. But it is natural and it is healthy for us to seek out a sense of closeness and a sense of proximity with a secure other and to create that. I think that there, there was a movement a long time ago that was related to codependency that made it seem as though it was wrong for humans to actually seek proximity and seek that kind of closeness. It is a bio-behavioral adaptation for us to have. And so it is part of us. It's less about trying to be completely self-reliant and more about how do we find healthy ways to feel closeness and connection. So just be aware that you probably have attachment patterns and you have attachment needs. And when you get better at communicating those, the better chance you have at creating secure and mature attachment and relationship patterns with others. Secondly, the other thing you can do is to value all interactions as platforms for practicing your attachment and co-regulating mechanisms. So you do not need to only have one specific person or two specific people that you rely on for all your attachment needs and all of your opportunities for practicing how to become more aware of your emotions and your different patterns. You can use all interactions for that. 
your coworkers, your boss, the cashier at the store, a stranger, a new friend, whatever that is. Every interaction you have with a human is another opportunity for you to become more aware of your subsymbolic, the visceral, sensory, kinesthetic sensations and feelings you have, and then creating words and expressions to use with them to attempt to create a sense of connection and resonance. And so you can also look at that from how do you hold your perspective and another's perspective at the same time? How do you make yourself available for them to send signals to you and for you to stay that kind of secure base in that moment without flipping out, without going to a high or an extreme low, even when they go up or down, you can actually find a way to stay steady so that they can figure out how to return back to center. So you don't have to, when I talk about resonance, I'm not talking about if they go extremely high or extremely low, that you go up and down with them, you allow them the space to do that. And you can figure out your own ways to stay grounded and centered in your own desired state in that moment. That's in a sense more what I mean by attunement, because that allows you to stay present to what they might need in that moment. If let's say we're talking about a friend and they're going through a moment of distress, it's not about becoming distressed with them. It's about staying in a present and available attuned state that is regulated so that you can then figure out how to respond to their needs and even be a model in a sense of regulation for them so that they can return back to a more regulated state. So we can value all interactions as opportunities to practice that. And in fact, I would recommend trying to practice that with people we interact with on a less regular basis or people we don't know as well, because that sometimes can be a little easier for us to notice our breath and stay with our breath and stay present and available to a person even if we're seeing that they're getting frustrated or bored or whatever it is, that can actually be helpful for us because as we enter into more intimate or familiar types of relationships, there's a lot more past assumptions that kind of get brought into that. So it can be harder to do that in those scenarios. So the more you're practicing this in all your interactions, the easier it gets. And then lastly, Create referential links between the subsymbolic and symbolic, the, the right and the left. So try first to feel a feeling, acknowledge a feeling, experience what's going on before you distract and go to some other activity and before you necessarily speak about it. So if you're just feeling, start, start to just notice when you're feeling even a sense of maybe it's a bit of overwhelm and you can't quite put your finger on it, just something's off. Stop what you're doing. Sit. Let yourself go into your body. Where are you feeling it the most? Sometimes it can be helpful to sit on the floor because often these are related to our very earliest experiences. So getting into a position that is more like what we might have done when we were little can help us go back into the sensations that were there. And we might start to discover that the interaction we just had with our partner or boss or friend or whoever that was actually just triggered something very deep from a long time ago, a feeling of abandonment, a feeling being unsupported or attacked or whatever that is. If we can go into that and feel it and then be able to kind of start to nuance it and name it, and if you can even write it down, can be very helpful. Talk to a safe friend or a therapist about these experiences If we can do that, we are creating these links between the hemispheres and these realms, the nonverbal with the verbal realm. And that helps us get better and better at everything I've just been talking about. Recognizing our patterns, reporting, and then being able to ask for our needs, and then also be able to understand other people's needs when they come to us. So a quick overview of today's episode is that attachment is a way of seeking proximity to an attachment figure. It starts from our very earliest experiences. We use our, our hands, our body, our voices, our eye gaze, many different mechanisms to try and send out signals and see how they get returned to let us know that there is an attachment figure that's available to us. It's a biobehavioral adaptation that helps us 
regulate ourselves and explore new frontiers and go to higher levels of complexity. One of the keys of secure attachment is a sense of resonance and attunement and availability and an ability of an attachment figure to tolerate our highs and lows and levels of distress. It's not only about being there for somebody when they are in a great mood, it's about being there for all of the different emotional experiences we can have. What can disrupt this are things that happen, especially earliest in in our earliest environments that create patterns later that can create insecure attachment patterns are things that happen with a caregiver that make them less attuned and available to us. And that can lead into different attachment styles or patterns or mechanisms, such as the insecure subtypes of avoidant, anxious, and disorganized. That's kind of from the childhood development areas. And then in the adult years, there's some researchers talking about it being anxious, preoccupied, dismissive, avoidant, and fearful, avoidant, as well as secure. And there are different mechanisms that we have that get activated when some of these attachment schemas, in a sense, are being triggered and we have a fear of either closeness or fear of being alone. And these can overlap with different nervous system responses that have to do with fight and flight, freeze and fawn. And we can become an earned secure person with earned secure attachment patterns. And that often has to do with being able to attune to and become more aware of our own experiences and feelings and sensations and be able to report them and communicate them to somebody else and figure out how to regulate ourselves in many ways. But then also to be able to ask for and communicate our attachment needs to another in a more mature way that is not using those other defense mechanisms that generally push people away. And we can do that just through becoming more aware of the sensations in our body, valuing all interactions as platforms for practice in terms of our co-regulating abilities, and creating these links between the sub-symbolic, the visceral sensory kinesthetic experiences and processes, and the symbolic, which are the words and our ability to name and report things. So these are all just different mechanisms we have for becoming more emotionally aware and figuring out how we can create a sense of closeness and attachment that's appropriate for us and that feels fulfilling for us and that allows us to hopefully be able to offer that to other people as well. If you want more resources on all of this, you can go to stephaniefay.com. I also will have shorter YouTube videos on a lot of these different concepts. So that's at my YouTube channel, Stephanie Fay. And if you can subscribe and leave a review, if you find these episodes helpful, that would be really great. Thanks for joining me.